Let's face it, people have different sleep needs. While you love your partner, sleeping next to them might not always be the most comfortable. Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Maybe you prefer a firmer mattress and your partner needs something softer. Because of the individualized comfort that you get from Sleep Number Smart Beds, you and your partner will sleep better together. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. And their temperature balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. The smart beds even automatically respond and adjust to your movements so you sleep comfortably all night long. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com from nice guy productions world headquarters overlooking the glamorous san fernando valley i'm mick garris and this is the fun size version of postmortem ama where you can ask me anything and producer joe has your questions joe how are you I am good, Mick. I am recharged from a vacation and ready to tackle a busy fall. How are you? Let's do it. I'm uh, in and out of vacation and working all the time. So uh, it's sure. it's all fun. And in the life of a creative, I guess you, you never really uh, get any real time off because you, you, you are always thinking, you're always working, you're always on it. Yeah, but uh, that's all fun to me too, you know. Yeah, no, I agree. It's, 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 it doesn't feel like hard work, especially you the find, work. Do you find that Cynthia has to like pin you down and be like, Mick, we're doing this. Like we have to go somewhere and do something else. Uh, sometimes, or sometimes it's my idea. Yeah. So. Crystal, Crystal usually has to be like, Joe, you're taking time off. <laughs> <laughs> you're working too hard. You're pushing keep, too hard. I'll just keep going. I'll just keep going, you know? So, all right. Yeah. Well, speaking of keeping going, we have lots of questions. Shall we get going? Let's dive in. All right. Tiny Vikings Designs asks, Joe and Mick, what is your favorite Simpsons Halloween special? Mick, are you a Treehouse of Horror fan? Well, I'm just wondering what kind of tiny Vikings he designs. Um, but, <laughs> That's a great uh, question. You know, we'll I have think to do this... a tiny Viking ask Mick anything. All right. Yes. Right. No, I, I think the Simpsons are brilliant and, and I've seen a bunch of them, but not in many years. Um, so I don't really know. I've seen maybe two or three of the Treehouse of Horror episodes. So it would be unfair for me to comment, but I get the feeling you are much more a Simpsonado than me. Well, I, I grew up with The Simpsons, uh, so they're very much a part of my childhood. And every Halloween, uh, we try to catch marathons of the Treehouse of Horror episodes. And, and last year, they had them all uh, broken out on Disney+, Plus, which was pretty awesome. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. So maybe you can catch up on them this year, Mick. But, but uh, hmm. two that stand out in my mind were the uh, groundskeeper Willie as uh, Freddy. There was a Nightmare on Elm Street spoof that was pretty good. Oh, that sounds uh, good. And, and then one that is appropriate for you, uh, there was uh, a spoof on The Shining where Homer very classically said, uh, no TV and no beer make Homer go something, something. 
Oh, that sounds good. Yeah, oh, those are, those, those are two iconic ones to me. So uh, that sounds great. Well, good choices, Joe. Yes, and I, I wish I could chime in, but I claim ignorance. <laughs> All right. Well, Adam writes, we have an Adams family spinoff being made by Tim Burton and a Munsters remake led by Rob Zombie in the works. Which spooky serial remake would you have picked if you had the choice? Mick? Well, we've talked a little bit about this before, sequels and remakes and the like, and I'm, I'm not all that thrilled with the idea of revisiting something, especially if it was really good and really well-established and really well-known. Uh, but for a couple of years, I was attached to remake uh, an Australian movie called Thirst that David Hemmings starred in. And wow. it's a really interesting, non-supernatural um, vampire story. And, and we were working on it with a couple of writers uh, at the Wolper Company. And I was really excited about doing it. Um, we came close to doing it. it, it the, the very well-known B-movie producer uh, of some of the great Australian classics like Thirst and Turkey Shoot and a bunch of other things. Anthony Ganane was the producer of the original, and we he would have been producing this one as well. And so that's one that got away that I would love to have done because it's not that well-known. It had a brilliant concept that could easily be brought up to date. And... Um, so uh, that was one remake that I actually considered doing and was excited about doing. That's pretty cool. And that's one I haven't heard you talk about before. Uh, do you think that's, that's in your mind, if you were going to remake something, you would want it to be lesser known so you didn't have the weight of the intellectual property hanging over your head? Well, remaking a classic is folly. Now, some would say that I did that with The Shining, sure. but there was a different philosophy behind that because the author of the book, um, Stephen King, was uh, famously not a fan of that. So that was done for a different reason. And we never looked at it as a remake, but right. basically not a reboot, but a boot. Um, <laughs> but in the case of, yeah, to me, the most exciting uh, remakes are the ones that take a really good idea that not everybody was exposed to and bring new life to it and, and you know, really charge it. Um, and that was the opportunity to do with a, a small scale film that not many people other than the Cognoscenti uh, were familiar with. I, uh, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, and I think that's a great answer. Uh, one, but I do think though, maybe more specifically, and this is maybe just out of my own curiosity, maybe because I read the question a little differently, but if you had to pick Adam's family versus the Munsters to make, which would you <laughs> pick? Which were you more of a fan of, Mick? Well, you know, I watched them as a kid when they were on the air and I was a fan of both of them. As a child, I liked the Munsters better because it had all the universal stuff and was shot on the universal lot. And it was in color, although we never saw color, but it looked more expensive. But as I started growing up, I realized that the Adams family was much wittier, uh, much less childish um, mm. and was really clever in ways that I could appreciate as, uh, as the years piled on. Whereas the monsters were, you know, Fred Gwynn going, <laughs> that's actually pretty good. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Rob Zombie. Are you listening? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm not 
quite tall enough for Fred. Yeah. <laughs> well, of course, so you, you do have those boots as Herman Munster. So. That's true. Yep. But um, yeah, so that uh, that's the other answer to the same question. There you go. All right. Cinema Martin asks, Mick and Joe, how did you first discover the works of David Cronenberg? That's a really good question. It is a really good question. I'd never heard of him before. And uh, there was a movie called Rabid. And I saw it in a theater in Hollywood. And it blew me away. And I wanted to bring friends to see it. It was so well written, so smart, and so, you know, high level horror uh, in, in such an iconoclastic way. It didn't feel like anybody else's movie. It could only be made by this one guy. Well, the very next day, I saw that it was playing in the Valley in another theater that no longer exists on a double bill with something called They Came From Within. I didn't realize that was a Cronenberg movie too. So I took a couple of pals with me, a couple of my band members actually, to see a double bill of Rabbit and They Came From Within. And it was an explosion of Cronenberg all over the screen and all over my brain. And so that was what introduced me to his work. And then when I was working at Avco Embassy to do special publicity for their genre films, in this case, they were doing um, Videodrome. And so uh, I organized a David Cronenberg film festival. And this was before anybody really, he was not a household name, even with the, the, most robust film fans. Right. And so I put together a festival of the first four movies. They came from within also known as shivers, the original title, um, rabid, uh, scanners, uh, the brood and scanners and put out press releases saying, you know, we're doing this film festival to climax with the release of Videodrome from the, uh, the highly regarded, brilliant David Cronenberg pretending you were, that he, you were you were doing Beyond Fest before Beyond Fest was doing Beyond Fest. <laughs> yeah, this was just a one night five movie show. That sounds awesome. And it was amazing. And Wolfman Jack was there. People turned out in droves and um, people believed that Cronenberg was well known and became well known because of of scanners and and this great you know, assortment of brilliant work that, that a lot of people knew about, but not enough people in the mainstream knew about. That's, that's such a good answer. And it's so much better than mine. <laughs> <laughs> Go for it, Joe. Uh, well, we've, we've documented on this show that I wasn't wa- allowed to watch R-rated movies for a long time growing up. So, uh, you know, and David Cronenberg movies are very R-rated movies. Uh, so, sure. so they, uh, they, they missed me during my, you know, youth, but, uh, my entry point was a history of violence. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, that was the first Cronenberg movie I saw. I think it was also, I mean, it was his first, as far as I know, real Oscar push, you know, and, and I yeah. think that Josh Olson's screenplay getting all that love, yeah. uh, you know, it, 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 you know, I was like, wow, what is this movie? And I was, and it so was enraptured. based on a graphic novel too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I was so, I was so enraptured by the movie that it, it made me, you know, by that point, gosh, I can't remember when that was, but you know, I went back to the video store and started picking up other David Cronenberg movies. So uh, that was, that was my entry point, uh, which, you know, so I, I got on the train late, but uh, very quickly caught up. 
<laughs> Better to get on it than to miss it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, all right. Gary writes, question for you both. What personal cameras or camera equipment do you own? Mick, are you a, a camera guy? Well, this presupposes, uh, because I'm a filmmaker, that I would be doing it in my off hours as well. Um, you know, I have had cameras over the years that, that I played with and the like, but the camera that you carry with you is the one that you use. Mm -hmm. the, the iPhone 12 is what I use. And, uh, you know, it is amazing quality. Yeah, it's, it's not pro version. Like I know, Joe, you uh, have professional camera equipment to take pictures, uh, which you've done many times on the show here. But um, I'm a more casual camera user. Um, when I'm making films and television, that's a different story. Um, but uh, I do not have a bunch of professional camera equipment uh, for personal use. And I would think most writers and directors don't unless they're like me and they have a Nikon that they tinker with, you know, or if they're real indies and they use the equipment that's true. That yeah. They, that yeah, they own, yeah, they exactly. buy their cameras, right. The, right. you know, the Sony's or the, the minis. And yeah, there are there. But I, I find that most people who get into that and go down that rabbit hole tend to become people you'll rent gear from more so than they're out making their own things. You know, right. uh, well, I, I know I, that I've, Gary, just from his uh, Twitter interactions with us is a guy who yes, does he's been, professional uh, he's been, equipment. Yeah. Yes. He's been, and, and, and the stuff he's shooting with the professional equipment looks, looks really nice. So, uh, you know, it, look, look, I mean, I, when I was, uh, just getting started in college, I got a uh, Panasonic mini DV camera and used yeah. that for a bit. And, uh, and then, yeah, the, the, the Nikon is great because it also it's DSLR and it shoots video. So if I, I have used it for, you know, a couple little video projects here, but I've never shot, um, you know, any, any like professional grade short films or features with it. It's, it's just been more like, uh, interview things and such and uh and then and then you know and then just mostly I, I consider myself a hobbyist uh i have yes i have a professional camera but i i i know how, i know how to use it just enough to get in trouble not <laughs> <laughs> uh i wouldn't i wouldn't call me to do your headshots but um okay you know, so we're but, not going to have joe's tech corner uh, every other week no we are not going to have that uh if you want to know about f-stops this is not the podcast for you uh, <laughs> But, but um, yeah, I mean, you know, but I agree with you. I think the iPhone's incredible. I, I you know, I love my Nikon, but I, I, you know, we just went to Santa Barbara and I took photos with my iPhone and they're, they're great and they look good. And, you know, so yeah. it's just so much more convenient to carry something that small. Yeah. And the, the software in it and the software that's available for it makes the iPhone uh, remarkably um, professional quality photos for the casual photographer. Yeah. I mean, if you know how to push the iPhone, you can get something that looks almost as good as, as an icon. Um, and that to me combined with the, the, you know, the ease of being able to bring it around is, is what makes it probably my, my go-to camera as well. So there's, there you go, Gary, sorry for the disappointing answer. We use our <laughs> iPhones. <laughs> And that concludes our <laughs> yeah right all right all right next next uh, no, yeah that's in the tech corner today uh, all right Tuomas five thousand writes 
As an independent filmmaker, I am always trying to find good books or documentaries about the art of filmmaking or directing to help hone my craft. I'm wondering which books or documentaries or how-to guides would you recommend? When you were starting out, did you find a particular book helpful? You know, for me, uh, I, I never really did. You know, I, I I read some screen, a couple of screenwriting books and, and uh, you know, learned a few technical things. But as far as the making of movies, the um, American Society of Cinematographers, the ASC, puts out a handbook that is a technical how-to that is really nuts and bolts and very difficult to make your way through. I would refer to that. But probably magazines like American Cinematographer, where you have really accomplished cinematographers, uh, directors of photography being interviewed and talking about their equipment and how they do it. Uh, for me, it was more watching movies and doing it mm -hmm. because I started mm -hmm. at a certain point where I was directing after having been a screenwriter. It was, a, for me, a natural progression. But I never really, I don't know of any books or documentaries, and especially because I started directing in the 80s, anything that I looked at then would be completely out of date now, way sure. predated digital photography and all. So I think, you know, something like an American cinematographer or like the like Tuomas said, um, things that are online. I, I think YouTube probably has access to a lot of technical stuff, but mm -hmm. but with with American cinematographer and thing publications of that sort, you're getting the actual technicians and artists talking about the technical and the artistic side of the process. Yeah. And I think that's really important. I didn't really have access to that stuff. And it was more just learning by doing and being thrust into the fire and uh and trying to trying to find my way out and surrounding myself with the best people possible and the more that you work as a filmmaker the more you learn from all the department heads and all the technicians who work around you and and that to me has been my my university plus starting out on amazing stories yeah, was, yeah. steven spielberg is your coach is uh yeah he's a good coach. way to get your foot in the door <laughs> you get to be on set with steven spielberg and joe dante and bob zemeckis and martin scorsese and clint eastwood so you yeah know. so just just do that uh, yeah do, do that, that. <laughs> do that that's my recommendation uh, but, uh, <laughs> from that but you also don't because so much of the learning takes place the work comes before the set yeah, no, I, I remember when I was on The Kingdom, the Peter Bird movie, that was the first professional movie I was ever on as, as, as an intern. And the machine was so big and so well oiled. You really don't understand the inner workings of it when you're just casually observing. You know? Yeah, the, ca the creative decisions mostly are made before you get to the set. But yeah. what about you, Joe? Do you know of any doc docs or, uh, or well, books that are helpful in that regard? I, I, there, there are a couple when we've touched on them in the past on previous AMAs, but I think you and I, as far as screenwriting goes, think Stephen King's on writing is is probably one of the best creative writing, you know, things creative, that we'll about creative. Yeah. yeah, anything. Yeah. But I think for understanding story and understanding the creative process for writing, it's it's great. Um, you know, I think it's like writing training wheels, but I still think that there is value in Save the Cats. Um, I think Tuomas is uh, talking more about filmmaking than screenwriting. 
Sure. Uh, and but then I was going to say the other the other thing. But I do think that and I, this is, I guess, my point about bringing up the writing books is um, in terms of I think that directing and filmmaking, you need to understand storytelling and you need to understand storytelling over a feature length or, or pilot length. You know, uh, and I think that those books can help you do that and understand Definitely. that. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think there is that even though they're more writing centric books, I do think good directors are also are, are good storytellers and good storytelling is is found, built in writing. So I think, you know, reading book, reading narrative books, reading screenplays, all that stuff is going to make you a better filmmaker. But as far as documentaries go, I mean. I, I came up in the era I went, I was in college during the boom of DVDs and behind the scenes features. And I don't think there's anything, I mean, the Robert Rodriguez 10 minute yeah. film schools Those are, are great, great. Uh, but I don't think there's anything really better than the Peter Jackson documentaries on the Lord of the Rings discs and on King Kong. Um, they're so comprehensive. They're so, I mean, they're hours long. I mean, you can really learn every little nut and bolt thing you could ever hope to about production on those, on those discs. Um, that sounds uh, like a really great answer. Yeah, I would. So I would look there. Um, so you might have to find them. I've been, you know, I'm sure they're still out there, but, but oh, uh, they're, sure. they're, they're sitting on my DVD shelf. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> awesome. um, all right. Herkimer Homolka writes, I would love to know how Mick thinks his writing style has changed from his earlier studio years to today. Well, I think I've developed a writing personality. I, I think there's a more distinctive voice that can only come with experience, but I think it's also gotten deeper. The things I write about are more emotionally based. You know, the, the more experience you have, whether it's in love or loss, um, the deeper a human being it makes you and the better artist it makes you as well because you can tap on reservoirs of experience. Um, so I would say emotional depth is something that has come more and more to my writing and appears uh, in the books as much as the films or even more so because they are so intimate and personal and don't have anybody else's input in them. Um, Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think it's it's basically been a deepening, but also developing a voice that's that has a sense of humor about it, that has a wryness to it. Um, and I've learned how to make a screenplay as readable as a book or a story. And I think that's important in putting across to whoever needs to read the screen, screenplay more than just its blueprint, but it's. Um, attitude and personality as well. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I, 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 I was going to say, um, you know, my question to follow up on that would be, you just went back to one of your oldest scripts. Yeah. Um, you know, and I know you did a rewrite on it. Uh, so tell me about that. Tell me about, you know, going back and looking at it and then trying to find a way to merge it with your current voice. Well, one thing, too, is learning brevity, how to put it across with a personality and with a sense of movement and, and propulsion. And young writers often will overwrite. They're mm -hmm. trying to write a book into it. They're trying to tell a director how to direct a scene when that's mm -hmm. the director's job, not the writer's job. So there were definitely blocks of, of scene descriptions that ended up in the waste camp. 
the virtual waste can. Right. So I think I learned a lot about that. And of course, having had experience more in, in loss and love both from the time that I'd written that script originally, um, it, it deepened it and the characters, there's, there's more depth to them. They, they feel lived in, you know, often a movie starts when the, when the credits roll and ends when the end credits roll. And I like to be able to imbue the characters with such a personality that you feel they lived before and they continue to live after, unless I killed them off in the movie, of course. <laughs> I think that's a great answer. Uh, all right. Percasso asks, are there any artists, painters, whose body of work or style ha- that have influenced you or your cinematic vision? Um, probably, you know, probably less consciously than, uh, than subconsciously. Um, you know, of course, all the classics, the Van Goghs and the like, give you an appreciation of form and mm-hmm. light. One of the most interesting, and I, I was really influenced by them uh, when I was doing Once Upon a Time, is the Hildebrandt twins, um, the brothers Hildebrandt, who were beautiful um, painters who did uh, the original Star Wars poster. They did a lot yeah. of fantasy painting and their sense of light was magnificent. The sense of color and light. And these were twins and they painted together. And even normally, even identical twins are very different in their output, but uh, they were identical artists as well. So that's one. And I've of course been influenced by a lot of the uh, comic artists like, uh, but as far as fine art, uh, Dali and his impressionism and and surrealism was something that that really had an influence in the dreamlike qualities that genre films can go into. And William Blake, of course, with the uh, unbelievably monstrous imagery from a very ancient time, you know, long before our time. Um, but some of the more contemporary. Uh, you know, Bernie Wrightson was just such a great, great illustrator for comics and for books. His his uh, illustrations for the book Frankenstein, mm. as well as Stephen King's The Stand illustrated version. Those Bernie Wrightson illustrations are great. Bill Stout is another guy I know who's just really been influential, who illustrated one of my books, but he's done he started with underground comics and became a fine artist of natural history art of dinosaurs and and undersea creatures and the like and one of the ec comics that is very unheralded but really was was one of my favorites uh before i was even reading comic books was joe orlando who was a philippine artist who just did really clean wonderful work very similar to what my dad did as an art student and trying a would-be artist and comic book uh, illustrator who never got a chance to make his living that way. But uh, Joe Orlando's work reminded me a lot of what my dad did. Um, one other person I was going to say that I feel like you might have forgotten is uh, the the timeless classic Critters 2. Uh, sure feels like Norman Rockwell. Uh, yeah, well, <laughs> that, that, that is a favorite theme of mine. Uh, Norman Rockwell goes to hell. Yeah. That and 
and uh, sleepwalkers. And in yeah. fact, in fact, I shot recreations of a half a dozen Norman Rockwell paintings to be the opening montage for the credits on Sleepwalkers, but we ended up cutting them out. But I did perfect recreations of like six of Rockwell's iconic paintings and shot them on film to establish wow. the uh, the town of Travis, Indiana uh, under the credits, but we ended up not using. Oh, wow, man, I wish, I wish we could find those. Those sound like they'd probably be amazing. Well, they're in the uh, Sony a, film a library. vault somewhere. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Wow, unbelievable. Well, see, I'm I'm glad I brought up Norman Rockwell. That is so that am is... I, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Johnny writes. I know that Mick loves music, and he and Stephen King have talked often. But did they ever discuss music they liked? Not for a movie or a show. Just two pals hanging out, talking music. Well, it's. Uh, legend how much uh stephen king loves acdc and i'm i'm not so much a metal guy as he is but one place that we met uh in our tastes was crowded house he was a huge crowded house fan not as big as me they were uh but when when i brought in don't dream it's over instead of the beach boys fun 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 for the montage in the stand he was very happy with that choice and and uh, when um, he and John Cougar wrote a musical together that was intended for Broadway, but never made it there, the Ghost Brothers of something county. Uh, anyway, uh, it played in Atlanta and I went to see the show there and it was a fantastic show. And uh, as we were walking from the hotel to the theater, uh, it was me and King and John Cougar and Meg Ryan and John Cougar and I were singing Knots together by Gentle Giant. Knots is one of the most complicated vocal pieces that all five of the members of the band took part in. And <laughs> it was such a blast. That was one of the fun things, musical things that we did with with King, who just it, it was uh it was beyond him, but he was enjoying watching us do our vocal acrobatics and taking part in that. <laughs> so it was really fun. That's very cool. That's very cool. Uh, sticking on the music for a second, um, TD Pero asks, uh, and I kind of already know the answer to this, but with your music background, would you ever direct a music video? Uh, well, yeah, I kind of did one, and it was the most expensive music video in history, and that was Michael Jackson's Ghosts. Um, it was, uh, we started shooting two weeks before it shut down because of the first scandal that happened that broke out, which, you know, the veracity of that is not up to me to decide, but that's what was going on. And for three years, Michael uh, kept saying, we're going to do it, we're going to finish it, and and finally, it ran up against my schedule for The Shining, and I recommended Sam Winston, uh, Stan Winston take over, and he's the one who finished it. And it's called Ghosts. Um, and I would love to do a music video. Uh, that's the only one that I was asked to do. Um, and uh, it was really a lot of fun and was really expensive and elaborate. <laughs> and we had a lot of fun doing that. Um, but it was also working on the Michael 
clock and calendar, which is as elastic as if Salvador Dali painted it. So Some, someday we're going to do a, a full on deep dive, maybe for the anniversary of ghosts. We'll, we'll, we'll really dig into it, but uh, I mean, geez, Nick, talk about diving in uh, with, with both feet, the king oh, of pop. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's still, yeah, I'm going to do a music video. Yeah. Yeah. With, with the biggest superstar in the world at the time. Yeah. And of course, I, <laughs> Cynthia and I were both zombies in Michael Jackson's thrillers. Right. So I yep. was to participate in the world's, most historic and, and most successful music video ever, as well as for a couple of weeks, direct the world's most expensive music video. Ever. <laughs> <laughs> pretty, pretty, pretty incredible stuff. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll dive deeper into that on the anniversary, but, uh, but that said, I would love to do a music video. I, I would too. I've always, uh, I've always found it fascinating, but every band that I've ever talked to, they've, they've never been able to pony up the, the budget. So <laughs> exactly. uh, that's usually the case that I've, I've found, but uh, yeah. all right. Mike D would like to round out his understanding of foreign horror movies and would love two to three recommendations from us. What wow. are your picks, Mick? Well, there is a vast library of international horror movies to choose from, but um, going way back to the beginning, The Golem and uh, you know, uh, Cab The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari and The Silent Days. Uh, but if you're just going to dip your toe in the pond, there's one, there's a French one called Raw by Julia mm. de Corneau, uh, mm -hmm. who, whose new, new film, Titan, Titan was a sensation at Cannes and won the major prize there. Um, but it's called Raw and it is pretty intense and really French, <laughs> very unique. Uh, and another female directed horror movie, not quite a horror movie, is Revenge, of course, with our, our friend of the podcast, Coralie Fargia. Yes. I highly recommend those. Train to Busan is a brilliant South Korean film zombie film that I can enjoy despite it being a zombie film at this point. It's excellent. It, it's really great. And you'll, you'll find South Korean films have a heavy dose of sentimentality to them too. Even their most grotesque films have mm -hmm. a, a real humanity to them that you don't always find within the genre. Um, uh, there's another uh, South Korean film called The Host that I love a lot if you want to see a, a great monster movie. The Swedish film, the original Let the Right One In, is a highly recommended, very adult vampire story um, that was just terrific. And most recently, uh, this isn't a movie, but the TV series 30 Coins or Trenta Monedas um, was made in Spain by Alex de la Iglesia, is amazing amazing uh an amazing series it's on hbo max it's in spanish um but it is so brilliant and so creative and it just keeps going the whole length of the series is is quite phenomenal so there's there's a, a grocery bag full of uh, yeah I, I would just add on uh isa lopez tigers are not afraid i know that's oh, one brilliant film i love that movie that was made in mexico yep uh i would also um add on the orphanage that's one that i'm a big fan of oh it's uh, terrific i really like that too yeah yeah that one's that one's great and then one that i feel like uh less people have seen was on netflix a couple of years ago called veronica 
Um, oh yeah, that's quite good too. It really, it really, he was really spooky. Uh, and I think it was from the director of Wreck, if I remember correctly. Um, oh, so, okay. uh, so, so, which is also a, a Wreck a, is really good too, and Wreck yeah. too also. Yeah. So there you go. That's that is a plethora of foreign horror to get you through your Halloween season. There is um, a round the world journey in horror. Yes. All right, Mick. Well, uh, thank you for another wonderful AMA. And uh, thank you, producer Joe, and let our listeners know how they can submit their questions so that we can answer them. They can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Mick Garris PM, or they can find me at Joe Russo tweets or Joe Russo Graham. Uh, use the hashtag AMA uh, so I can find them and uh, we will pull the best of the best to ask Mick on air. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Mick. Thank you for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris on the Dread Podcast Network. Download new episodes every Wednesday and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Calling all coffee drinkers. If you've been trying to enhance your daily coffee routine, then Quest has got your back with their brand new iced coffees. Now available in two delightfully delicious flavors that'll be sure to add an extra pep in your step. Vanilla latte and mocha latte. Quest has been on a mission to help fuel you with protein-forward foods you'll love. Each bottle of Quest iced coffee is packed with 200 milligrams of caffeine, the same amount as two cups of regular coffee, plus 10 grams of protein per serving to help you supercharge your day. And did I mention that they only contain one gram of sugar? It might just be time to cheat on your iced coffee with iced coffee. Find Quest iced coffees on Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition. That's Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition.